This week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Eric from Myth Cycles in Durango, Colorado. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone with somebody in the bike frame building world and we talk for about an hour. I try to help them tell their story about how they got started and we talk about perspectives and process and craft. Um, Eric does myth cycles in Durango, Colorado. Uh, it's a lot of mountain bikes and you know, off-road going bikes. He just built a full suspension bike that we talk about. And um, he worked for Ron at King Cage uh, for seven years. He's welded an absurd amount of, of water bottle cages and learned a lot from working with Ron. And so we talk about that and we talk about, you know, the building and what it means to really have control over your process and to be able to do things on your timeline the way that you want to without having to worry that other people are going to muck it up. Uh, You know, sometimes it's helpful to work with other people and sometimes it's just too much stress and it's not worth it and it's too risky. And so we talked about that quite a bit. And anyway, uh, really good discussion. Eric is a super bright and helpful person and I really like what he's doing. And so I was stoked to get him on the show. Basically, I didn't go to college. Um, I'm not a college graduate. I actually, I went to like one semester and then decided to take a break and just never went back. Um, and eventually ended up going to welding. I went to a local community college and learned how to TIG weld. And it was when I did that, I was, or, you know, the ultimate goal was actually to build bike frames. And, but, you know, I kind of finished school and I got a job, entered the workforce, um, doing some welding. And I kind of forgot about all of the frame building stuff. Um, I definitely always kind of would remember it. Um, but I didn't really work towards it. I really spent, uh, quite a few years just kind of developing my skill as a metal worker, I guess, and Mm -hmm. becoming a better welder and just kind of just learning the material and things like that. I was working for Ron Andrews, um, so so who uh, owns King Cage here in Durango, and so that was you know he's an old bike industry guy, and uh, that was kind of part of why I wanted to work for him was you know that it was related to bikes and everything, and and I kind of out of the blue just wanted to build a frame, and I got super excited about it again. But now I kind of had a skill set behind me. I I could approach something without, you know, I could approach it without teaching myself to take weld so I could build a bike frame. I actually knew Mm -hmm. how to run a welder um, and a milling machine and things like that. And so the thing that actually made me want to build a bike was that uh, the salsa powder keg, which was their mountain bike tandem for a really short period of time, my wife and I saw that and we're like, we need a mountain bike tandem. And <laughs> I've always mountain biked or I've mountain biked with my wife for a long time and she's a really strong rider. And, and it was just one of these funny things that we just looked at it and I was like, Oh my gosh, I should make one of those. 
So the first frame I built was a mountain bike tandem. Wow. Um, That's ambitious. And yeah, <laughs> it was kind of, it was kind of a funny thing, but I guess it felt <clears throat> right. Uh, partially because, it was something I didn't really feel like we could go out and buy. Um, mm-hmm. And I really liked the powder keg, but I, I, there were certain geometry things that I didn't love about it. wanted to change. And so it actually felt like it was something that I could um, go out and create something that didn't exist. And so, um, and I was still working for Ron Andrews at that time. And uh, he let me use his shop to build it. And, um, yeah, he, you know, kind of, kind of answered a lot of my questions along the way. And, you know, we built a jig out of 8020 and I was over his house on the weekends. And by the time I was done with it, I'm pretty sure he was pretty ready to, uh, to have his shop back <laughs> for having this like, <clears throat> like almost seven foot long bike frame yeah. and jig, like in the middle of the shop. Um, but yeah, it's. So- it was it was a lot of fun and I learned a lot. Yeah, Ron Andrews worked at Fat City with Chris Chance and and um, uh, Jeff Buchholz and a bunch of other folks uh, in Boston back in the '80s and possibly into the '90s. I don't know his timeline exactly. He might know better. But uh, do you yes. know if he had ever built a tandem before uh, when when you guys worked on that together? So Ron's story. So I guess you know, just like he, like he's an old industry guy, he. Um, he kind of, he worked for fat city cycles for a long time and he was, his whole thing in the industry was that he was a tool maker. Um, and so he was always working for companies that were manufacturing bikes in the United States. Um, he did a bunch of work for Ibis, like I think, let's see, Merlin and Joe Breeze and, oh, and then obviously Yeti. Uh, Yeti is actually what brought him here to Durango. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so he was a toolmaker, and so he was always involved in the production building process. And so I know that he had been around the manufacturing of tandems quite a bit, um, especially with Ibis, because I know that like Ibis did a whole bunch of tandems. He's got actually one of, apparently one of the four original Ibis prototypes that they made. Wow. They made four prototypes. Um, and his was one of them when they were kind of trying out some geometry stuff and, and things like that. So that definitely helped. But I mean, I don't know, when it comes down to it, a tandem is it's like, you know, a regular front triangle and a rear triangle with a bunch of extra tubes in between them. Um, yeah. So it wasn't really that different. It was just like a lot more welding and mitering. And yeah. I, I haven't done so. one, but I've heard some people say that a tandem frame is five times as much work to build as like a normal diamond frame. Uh, what's your What's your take on that? I don't know about five times, but it's definitely at least twice as much. Do you, it is one of those things where you like start welding it and you're just welding, you know, for hours and you look up and you're like, man, am I still welding a main bike? There's just so many more parts to it. Um, and it's, it's that funny thing too, where like you've got two C tubes to ream and, um, two bottom brackets to deal with, um, or, you know, just depending on what you're doing, but I don't know. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, and I also I don't think it's that bad, but 
I always say that mountain bikes tend yeah. to be a lot harder than, than, you know, road bikes and other types of bikes also, just cause you know, you have all the, the tighter tire clearance around the chain ring and the tire and the, the bending of the tubes is, you know, complicated uh, topic if you want to get it right. And uh, you know, there's so the dropper post and all these different components that go on. And so it's just ends up usually being pretty complicated and to start your first frame with a mountain bike tandem, that's a, uh, it's ambitious. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, it, it came out good. We I ended up making a second one that kind of fixed all the geometry things. I didn't like about the first one a few months later, so I'll, I can't say that uh, it came out perfect. But it was a <laughs> it was a ton of fun. And that second bike is uh, my wife and I still ride it. We actually rode it a couple of weeks ago. It's tons of fun. That's awesome. Yeah, one of my uh, what, yeah. one of my favorite jokes about the the tandem bike is that it's like a <laughs> it's like a divorce machine or whatever. Just what if you like uh, if if you if you're not in a good if you're not in a good place with your relationship, then it just makes everything worse. <laughs> yeah, wherever wherever your relationship is going, you're going to get faster there on a tandem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what uh-huh. people say. <laughs> and actually, when I built that bike, uh, my wife and I weren't married, but. We are nice. happily married now. Well, <laughs> yeah, you might not even be married yet if you hadn't built a tandem. So it just kind of spe- exactly. sped up the process. Yeah, totally. It's great. We we love it. It's That's riding. Awesome. It's great. Kind of turns in the heads too. <laughs> yeah. So you you had this background with fabrication and welding, and you were working for Ron at King Cage. And, uh, and you just, you got the, the itch through this tandem project to be building bikes. And so you built the tandem then you built a tandem 2.0. Uh, what time was this? Like how many years ago was that? That was right about four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of a few, I guess it was about six months before I decided to go for it with Miss Cycles as a business. Um, I kind of. I guess it was kind of, I was deciding it around the same time. It was kind of a time in my life where um, I'd worked for several companies in Durango that I could do welding and metalwork for. Um, and we don't have a ton of industry here. And so I was kind of in a place of wanting something new and different and something that I could really pour a lot more of my energy into, um, but just not having any opportunity I felt like um, in the job market here. Uh, so I decided to start a company and, um, it was one of those things where once the company kind of started, got it, got rolling and I sold a couple bikes, um, and I got through all the, you know, the sort of insurance and kind of nuts and bolts of getting the company going, the momentum really kind of picked me up and swept me away. And the next thing I knew I was, it was I think I lost you for a second there. Did <laughs> yeah. you ask me something? Yeah, the audio connection is not ideal, but um, it's mostly been holding up. What uh, the last thing that I heard you say was, uh, you know, once you got some momentum, it kind of picked you up and swept you away, or something. Yeah, it was. I think the reason I started Myth Cycles was partially because I really wanted to work for myself ultimately, um, and then a big part of it was that you know, bikes were a huge part of my life. And I just, I wanted to, I wanted to really create something cool and put, be able to have something to put creative energy into. Um, and I've never really been super artistic, but bicycles 
have that special combination of it's a mechanical thing that has to function well, Mm -hmm. um, but depending on how you reach those ends of like creating this mechanical thing, it can also be very aesthetic and that kind of works. It felt like worked really well for my creativity. Yeah, absolutely. I feel the same way about, uh, you know, it's what I do now with CNC machining and, and stuff and what I did with bikes. I feel like, and earlier in my life, I played guitar a lot and I was into photography and um, different things like that. And those were more explicitly creative and artistic and the metalwork stuff is maybe not as overtly creative, but it like the way that I approach mm-hmm. it, it definitely feels like it is like it scratches the same itch for me. I'm not going to like have an argument with somebody about whether or not it's like fine art or something like I don't really care, but right. uh, for me... Uh, as a person who feels creative and expressive, it it does that for me. It allows me to think creatively and to solve problems and to bring new things into the world and to feel like ownership over what I'm doing and to feel that satisfaction of, you know, making a, a good loaf of bread or whatever it is that you're making. It gives me all of that. But at the end of the day, it's it's not um, it's a little bit more constrained, and I like that. I think when you have a process yeah. that's purely creative, sometimes it's a little too open ended, or it can be, and um, you know you feel like I don't know, like like well, it could be anything. What should it be? Or I don't know. It can be a little more overwhelming when you when you narrow down the scope of what you're trying to do, and you have like restrictions and and stuff that that kind of dictate parts of it. Uh, that can that can be a really cool way to work on stuff, and uh, yeah, I really enjoy that about yeah. work. Yeah, I think you know, it's creativity is such a different, I guess, word uh, than art. Yeah. Um, you know, you can be creative and not necessarily be artistic. Um, like we all have creativity, and we can channel that into various things. And I've just found that. Um, I, my creativity in my life really came alive when I got into metalwork. Um, and since now that I have a business where I can really control everything, it's, it's allowed my creativity to kind of just be the best it can be. Um, but again, not necessarily being artistic at all. And I find that I always do the best after trying to problem solve. Um, which, you know, kind of what you were mentioning before about mountain bikes, it's a, it's a great platform for, you know, the short chain stays or, you know, tire clearances with chain ring clearances with, you know, fitting a dropper here and making sure that the dropper fits in the seat tube uh, for the certain size rider. And all of those things have to come together. And it's a fun problem to solve. So, yeah, yeah I really like it a lot. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, I want to talk some about when you did work with Ron and, uh, a a lot of people who listen to this would have seen the King cage booth at like a NABS or Philly bike expo or some other trade show. You know, Ron's been going to those shows for years. He's got a little flip book that everybody's seen where you, you know, you you flip through and it's like an animation (laughs) of him, uh, bending it up. I think he's bending it with his hands maybe in the animation. And then uh, he usually brings his his fixture with little Desteco clamps and he makes one of his titanium cages, I think. And, you know, he can bend the whole thing up in a matter of, you know, seconds and, and toss it on a pile. And oh. so he doesn't do the finish welding there in front of everybody, but it's kind of mesmerizing to watch. 
Uh, he's so good at it and the fixture is really cool. And so, you know, for where you're at, you had this experience with welding and you knew that you were interested in bikes. And at some point you found out that, that Ron was in your neck of the woods and you, you, you met him and you ended up working for him for a while. And I'm sure I can only imagine that that relationship has been very helpful to you and really educational to you. Uh, how did you meet Ron and, and, you know, what was that like, uh, working with him? Yeah, so um, he just hired me on as a welder to weld cages, and it was, I mean, when I started, it was really, I was still very much a novice with metalwork. I mean, I knew how to weld and do some a lot of fabrication stuff, but um, the time I spent in his shop, so I worked for him, I think, somewhere around seven years. Um, but the time I spent in his shop, yeah, don't even ask me how many cages I've welded. (laughs) Um, you know, Ron is one of those people who is really good at what he does. Um, and so I was lucky enough to have him become my mentor and, um, he taught me, I'm not going to say he taught me everything I know, but I would not be where I am without everything he taught me. I mean, he, he laid the groundwork, uh, for me to understand metal in the, in the way I do right now. He just was, he's like an old school East coast sort of, you know, I mean, you know, these guys are just, they live and breathe this stuff. And so he'd had a ton of experience from the bike factories that he'd worked in and a bunch of other jobs, um, that I would just, so I'd be sitting there welding cages, you know, all day long. Um, a cage nowadays, a cage takes me 45 seconds to weld. So doing that for an eight hour shift. Yeah. You can <laughs> kind of imagine. Wow. Um, so I would just sit there and I would just like ask him questions. I'd ask him about fat city. I'd ask him about, you know, Gary Helfrick and I would ask him about, building bikes. I mean, I probably was asking him questions about how to build bikes for like five years before I built a bike. And he would just answer all this stuff. And there was a period of time where the question asking got like kind of out of hand and he would just end up like in the shop and I, you know, he'd like go into the office to do some shipping or something. Be like, all right, tone it down. <laughs> but I mean, I just, it's crazy how much I learned um, from it. And I learned a lot about machine tools as well from him. And that, I think, has been a really important thing. But I think another really big thing that I learned from him was seeing a business function and, like, in a real way, in a, you know, like it's a profitable business that has paid for his life. Um, and he, you know, he works hard and his employees work hard for, for that money, but it, it works. And I think it's so valuable to be in that environment of seeing, just producing a product every week that gets shipped out. He ships cages all over the world, um, all over the U S but also all over planet earth. I mean, they're going to Japan and Germany and all over Europe and even all over Asia, Um, and so I think to see that production environment functioning was really helpful. And it's funny because a water bottle cage, 
I guess it feels like an afterthought for a lot of people, um, but it's still a product that you make from metal and then sell. And so I think, you know, also with his background in working in bike factories where there was like a lot of production as opposed to the really, really custom one at a time type thing. Mm-hmm. My, I think that that's one, been one big thing that's affected the way I approach stuff because everything, just like, you know, you and I were talking earlier, everything I do comes down to, can I, can I make that in enough time to sell it and, you know, not be uh, losing money? Uh, because at the end of the day, that's a big part of it for me is that I'm not, this isn't a retirement thing for me. I, you know, I've got a mortgage and I've got things, I've got a life that I want to pay for and I want to be a professional doing this. Mm-hmm. And for me, I guess I've always seen efficiency and doing something well as kind of the answer to that. So I think I got a lot of my approach to how I do things in my shop from him. Um, like a good example is, you know, I know a lot, I meet a lot of frame builders who are, who talk about hand filing their first miters and things like that. And I kept saying that when I was going to build the tandem, just because I wanted to like have that experience and Ron wouldn't let me. (laughs) (laughs) He, He just was like, no, use, and he would just point at the bridge port. And I was like, all right, fine, fine. I'll just, I use a whole saw, whatever. And it was just one of those things where that kind of has translated to a lot of how I run things in my shop now. It means a lot to me to be able to move forward quickly, but also accurately. So I guess I kind of, I, I didn't get that rite of passage of hand filing my, my first miters, but I have bought and completely overhauled several milling machines, which is kind of a whole other special rite of passage that um, I feel like has been really valuable for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When I got my bridge port, it was all the, there's like Zerk fittings for where you put whey oil in. I didn't have the Bejeweler oiler. I had the Zerk fittings and you know, a lot of people don't realize you're not supposed to push grease in there. You're supposed to push whey oil. And so it gets full of grease a lot of times on these old machines. And it's not really, uh, it's not, not a positive thing for the machine. So if you can, it's good to, you know, take it apart and clean out those passages and, you know, just like degrease the whole thing. I didn't repaint mine. I didn't, rescrape the ways or anything but i just i cleaned it up real good which took a couple days and some of those pieces are pretty heavy so they're kind of hard to take apart from each other but you get to see how the whole thing is put together it's really you know bridgeport is a pretty simple machine except for up in the the head is a little bit more complicated with the gears and stuff but it's really a pretty simple machine and uh it's it's definitely satisfying to go through and do that and just clean it up and the the patina the the chipped paint and all that looks kind of nice uh it's just good to get the grime off of it and give it a nice coat of oil. Yeah, it's um I've I've always really enjoyed the machine aspect to uh to metalworking as well as as yeah. frame building. So I've got I've got three milling machines and um and one lathe in my shop and none of them are very big, so they don't take up too much space, but I cram them all in there and put dedicated fixtures on a lot of them and so again it comes back to that that thing, how can I, I guess maybe 
part of it too just comes down to being a little bit lazy and I love walking over to a machine that had just has a fixture set up and ready to go on it. Yeah. And, uh, I just have a product that much sooner and it, yeah, yep. it, I guess it helps me with, again, coming back to that creative process of maybe just the tempo of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, yeah, I don't know. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny, the, the, mitering on a machine versus hand filing for your first bike. I love a machine process and I don't really love the idea of hand filing joints, but I did for the first couple bikes and for like, especially when I was learning to braze and TIG weld, I did a lot of hand filing just to, you know, prep stuff to put it together so I could test, test braze it and stuff. And for that, I don't know. I just feel like when I finally got a mill spindle and I started machining tubes with like hole saws, it was I was really slow with that method for a long time. I guess like if you went out and bought some of the, you know, the Sputnik or Anvil or whatever um, mitering fixtures, you'd probably be a little bit faster. And if you had a dedicated machine for each one, that definitely can get pretty quick. But when you have one little machine and you're setting it up every time, each cut is a new setup and you don't have scaled center to center mitering and all that, it's actually I think it's pretty slow and you know, bike tubing is thin walled and unless you're, you're trying to hand file like nine fifty three or something that's really hard. It's actually when you have the experience of doing it a couple of times, it's actually pretty quick to get a nice fit up with hand files. And so I'm always a little bit um, torn about what I suggest to people when they ask for their first bike, whether they should miter it with a machine or with hand files. Cause I feel like that speed that comes from a machine is really only there when you have the tooling and you have some experience with those machines. But like the first time you do it or the first 10 or 20 times you do it, it might not save you any time at all. Uh, Cause it's just, you know, it's, there's a learning curve and the setup curve. And, and also you look at each machine, let's say you, you got a Nichols horizontal mill that's in decent shape and you spent, you know, a grand or couple on it depends on where you live and what condition it's in. But Anyway, you get that machine and then you put like a rotary table and a horizontal mitering fixture on it. I mean, you might be in like, you know, three to five grand on that, depending on the variables. Uh, that's a lot of that's a yeah. lot of dough for this one little machine that's going to save you, you know, a couple minutes uh, every time you use it. And that, that comes back to you, of course, but uh, it takes a while. Yeah. yeah, well, and, you know, again, and I feel like I keep bringing this up, but it comes back to that um you know, it's, it's an individual thing. I think it's finding what makes you feel creative and following that. And for me, um, tool making probably partially because I learned from Ron, but tool making has always been, uh, a big part of my process. And so, you know, getting a machine, um, you know, I, one of the, I, I picked up a Nichols, recently that needed a whole bunch of work. Um, but I got it for 200 bucks, you know, nice. so I was able to put a, another couple hundred into it. And for 400, I've got a pretty stout machine that I can put a bunch of fixtures on, but I feel like I feel at my creative best when I'm problem solving and repairing that machine. Yeah. Um, and then also when I'm building fixtures mm-hmm. and I'm not gonna lie, when I come down to hand filing something it's <laughs> i mean partially i just stuck at it um and so you know i don't that's i i still see even though it maybe doesn't seem that way to some people for me i really do see the machine process 
as a creative process. Yeah. Um, because it can be, and it is, it is totally different for everybody because you can buy a fixture and, um, put it on the machine that you bought and maybe paid somebody else to fix the machine up for you. Um, it all just depends on what you're in it for, you know? And I think that, you know, there are so many people out there making such beautiful stuff with hand files. And then also with like CNC cut, like tuning miters. Um, There's everything out there. And I think that's one of the things that's so cool about this industry is that the vast array of like ways people are doing things. Um, And so while it seems like, you know, maybe we're all, we're all just making bikes. Um, if you really look at the processes and, uh, you know, the minutia of the products, I think that there's just amazing amount of creativity out there being put into these things. I think it's really cool. Yeah. I, I had an experience this week where I needed more of the, it's called the mount tube. It's part of my tube bender and it's just for, you know, bolting it to the table. Sort of an afterthought. I was like, yeah, I should probably include this. And so I do. And it's, it's inch and three quarter square tube, mild steel, and it's got a couple holes in it for different screws and bolts and whatever. And, uh, anyway, it's a pretty simple part. And then I get it, you know, powder coated or, uh, I've considered getting it made from this company, precision tube blazer, which is so cool what they do that, you know, I could get it stainless steel yeah. and they just spit it out of a machine and the laser just cuts all the holes. And it's like a finished part in like 30 seconds or something. And they got to set up the machine and write a program. And then it just, you know, spits out however many you need and they, they box them up and mail them off to you. And I was considering doing that because yep. it seems like a, honestly a better process for the part rather than putting it through a CNC mill. But I was also looking at, you know, just the math on it and it's like, well, I'm not going to get a huge quantity of them and I need them pretty soon. And their lead time was a little bit slow. And, you know, it's like, oh, I could just bang it out and get it done in my own shop. I do have a way to do it. And so I ended up doing it myself. I guess part of what tipped the scale was that, you know, the economy is maybe up, maybe down. It's a little hard to predict. And and so if I can just get it done myself and not spend the money, maybe that's a wiser decision. So I did it. But anyway, as I'm doing it, it's just like kind of miserable work. It's kind of draining, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Like my hands were really filthy and like it's it's weirdly fussy for what it is, like because I'm doing machine chamfers, so I don't have to deburr everything. But then it's really sensitive to how you load it and if there's chips under it. And so like even though it's a low tolerance piece you're like putting in all this effort in order to make it come out right and uh you know hours of machine time where your hands are wet with coolant anyway while i was doing it it's like i think what in hindsight would would tip the scale the other way for me to just buying them is that it wasn't so much the time to do it it was that it was kind of a draining process and um if i had to spend my time like that every day i would be less stoked on what i do and, you know, sometimes there's just work to do and that's just, that's just life. But, uh, I, I have some control over what I do in my shop and how I spend my time. And a lot of the other things that still need to get done, I'm like incredibly stoked on them. And that's maybe where I need to be, you know, focusing my energy and not on these things that, that make me just want to leave the shop at 5 PM rather than, you know, staying at work <laughs> and getting more done. Uh, yeah. that exhausting stuff that just drains your, drains your enthusiasm. That's, uh, you got to avoid that Absolutely. stuff. Yeah. Well, and it's, again, it's just, there's so many ways to do something, you know, you can, you can get everything, um, that you need for frame building from a company. Yeah. Well, I mean, Anvil is, um, not really in the game now, but, 
there are a lot of people making a lot of cool tools and you know, you can get your dropouts and tubing and all that from some really incredible companies like Paragon um, that are doing everything. Or, you know, you can choose to make some of that yourself. Um, There's a lot of reasons why you may or may not. Um, I started making head tubes, uh, 44 millimeter head tubes on my lathe just recently. And it's one of those processes that I thought about for a long time. And I figured out how I could do it quickly. And I don't even have a great excuse for it, except that I get to control that piece, Mm -hmm. um, which is something that I've felt is like a a really valuable thing. Beginning, I can kind of customize it a little bit. I usually do some kind of little design or something, whether it's a groove or, um, you know, some kind of milled thing around the head tube rings now. So it's, you know, it's also unique to me, but, I think a big part of it for me has always been keeping a lot of stuff in house because I have control over it. Um, And a big thing that really came up early on, I wanted to have powder coated bikes. I make mountain bikes. And so, you know, it's a nice, durable, fairly straightforward coating. And I worked with a guy at our local powder coater, the only local powder coater in Durango. And I worked with him for about six months on probably four different frames and I really got him dialed. He was totally, then he quit and I pretty much panicked because, you know, I, I had a customer at that point who was going to be getting a bike and I had no idea who this place was going to hire and I was going to have to start all over. And it was just that it, it made me realize how valuable it is to have things in house. Um, and so that's why I got, all of my powder coating equipment. Um, and I ended up making most of it. I built my oven. I didn't build the gun, but I built the whole booth and everywhere, uh, to do it in my sandblast cabinet and everything. But it, you know, it was a lot of time invested, but now that's something I have control over. And, uh, you know, this, um, the whole virus situation is a great example of where it's really benefited me because, I have no idea if that powder coat company is doing work right now, mm-hmm. but I don't need to because yeah. I can, as long as I have tubing um, and metal, I can make a bike and powder coat it and finish it and assemble it and ship it all in-house. Yeah. Uh, and that has really meant a lot to me in, you know, in my approach. So I guess that was a, a little bit of a uh, kind of an offshoot there, but um, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's there's a lot of ways to to do that. Yeah, I think about that a lot sometimes, like the pros and cons of of going down a certain path. Like if I if I well, for me, anodizing is a big deal because most of my parts are sixty sixty one aluminum and they get generally black anodized. And if I right. get if I call my material supplier and I'd say, you know, I want all these pieces of aluminum cut to this length and whatever, it'll be at my shop like the next day or two or three days later, almost always. And I can turn it around through my machine same day or the next day. A lot of days, you know, if I want to, if I'm motivated, I can get stuff in and out of my shop so fast. And yet, you know, anodizing, it's like you kind of want to let it build up a little bit until you have something that's worth sending for a batch and then you got it. My place is not in town, and it's all this 
this hoops, it just massively slows down my whole supply chain. But on the other hand, it's like, I don't have space and I don't, I don't really want to do <laughs> anodizing. Right. It's just, it's just a messy process. And so, you know, at this point yeah. I don't, but I can see how if it was more realistic or easier for me to do that work myself, it would really make my life a lot easier. And it would, it would make um, inventory management so much less stressful and less complicated right. because like, well, who cares if I'm out of stock of this thing, I'll be able to ship it by the end of the week. No big, no big deal. Yeah. Uh, so like, I don't even need to lose sleep over it, but now it's like, well, if I don't have this thing on the shelf and if my turnaround time is like a couple weeks to a month because anodizing and everything else, then, uh, you know, I'm probably going to lose some sales. That's a really big deal. When, when somebody wants something, they want it. And for better or worse, if, if you can just have it ready to go, that makes all the difference in the world to a lot of customers. And so, so you got to stay on top of it and it can be a little bit, you know, hectic. And I'm sure the same thing for, you know, shipping your painted bikes. If you, if you had the design finalized and you had all the materials there, uh, you know, you probably start and finish a bike in the same day with, with powder coat and assembly and everything in a really long day if you had that process dialed because you have everything in your shop and, you know, you wouldn't want to do that every single day, but that's, it's amazing that you could. And, uh, you know, what a, yeah. what, what a supply chain, you know, like, so I don't know if you'd say it's vertically integrated, but it's, you just have so much latitude for, for doing what you want. And that just feels good not to have to coordinate with everybody about stuff all the time and, and do things on other people's timelines. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that, yeah, for me, it, it really just came down to having that, having that control and not being at the mercy of other people to, to produce the product that I want and the quality of product that I want. Um, and yeah, I turn around is definitely a big part of it as well. Um, it is really nice. I, the, the powder coaters in town never really took that long. Um, but at the same time, the fact that I can pretty much finish welding a frame and then, uh, my, my powder coat in a different location, but, um, I can bring it there and have it powder coated in, in a matter of hours is, is really, really nice. Um, but yeah, again, it just, it's, it's a level of control over the process that allows me to offer more to my customers, you know, yeah. um, whether it's custom powder coat finish or um, really even just answering people's questions about yeah. it and understanding the process. You know, the fact that I understand what it takes to powder coat a bike is a big part of why I don't offer my frames raw or clear coated. Mm -hmm. um, I get asked that a lot and um, just, seeing what happens when you clear coat a bike frame. Yeah. Uh, like they look really, really awesome uh, when they come out of the oven clear coated and then they don't look at all the same. Um, but it's just one of those things that, you know, I can have that conversation on a level of understanding with my customers as opposed to like, well, let me talk to so-and-so mm -hmm. about it. And whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I like that because for me, it's really important to, to know what I'm talking about. So. Yeah. Well, and you never have to worry that somebody's going to mask or not mask things correctly. Uh, you know, and you don't yeah. have to waste any time uh, explaining that and documenting it. And like, you know, like I, I uh, a lot of times because my shop is so tiny and I don't have an awesome fully automated bandsaw or something and it doesn't cost much. I just get everything cut to length. It's, it's amazing. It's been so good for my yeah. workflow to do that. But before I ever did this, I was always hesitant because I was just imagining the situation in which my material supplier didn't saw it correctly. And, um, 
And, you know, like a bandsaw doesn't always cut straight if it's not set up right or the blade's dull or whatever. And so anyway, I I spent a lot of time worrying about that. Once I started buying stuff, saw cut, oh, it was great. I never had issues. And then recently it bit me in the ass. I had like a better part of a thousand dollars worth of uh, material and they took longer than, you know, they were supposed to, to to deliver it and whatever. And finally, you know, I got it. And like, I'd say 20, 20% of the parts were even as long as they should have been. (laughs) And then, and then, and then you look at the cuts and it's like two inch by four inch bar of aluminum and the cuts are like super crooked. It's like a 16th of an inch, you know, um, from from one edge of the cut to the other and in, in how much the blade drifted mm. and it's like I, you know because i put some time into that i was able to to you know squeak out a, a a clean part out of most of those but it's just like anyway when you don't control the process and when you're relying on other people even if it is good most of the time uh you yeah. just like you i feel like you just inevitably you're going to spend a lot of time worrying about it and a lot of time communicating things that uh, if, if you can handle that yourself, really can be pretty satisfying. Right. Well, and bicycle frames are, you know, metal bicycle frames are kind of a funny, they straddle that line of, it is metal work, but when you talk to most metal workers, the problems we face in building bike frames is so different. You know, one of the biggest things that I was always worried about with the powder coater was these guys are doing bumpers and, you know, (laughs) gates all day long. And they used the sandblaster they used was like outside in this shed. And it was one of those portable air compressors with the like inch and a quarter airline. And then guy in there like removing metal with that thing all long and I was like okay so when I say this is thin tubing you have to understand like it's really thin tubing and I would like bring in a bike tube for them so they could see and understand and but it was one of those things where I was like man all I have to do is get a different sandblaster guy who I haven't explained this to and he's going to go in full blast on that thing and I'm not going to know until my customer's on it and you know not saying that that is going to become a problem, but it was just one of those things that also since getting into that aspect of frame building, I've also had a lot of fun with the powder coating and learning the process. And it's yeah. another place to kind of play around with and creativity um, with the, with the finished product. But yeah, so I don't know. There's a lot of ways to skin that cat. I always felt like the, the biggest reason that I ever wanted to get into wet painting bikes, cause I'd considered that and where I have rented space for years. Um, my landlords have a, a pretty decent paint booth actually. And, um, and I've used that for when I, you know, random projects and when I worked for them some in the past. And so, uh, I could do, bikes in there in fact i did my youtube video series with a a rattle canned my my one paint uh, my one bike in there but anyway uh that space would work well and so i always considered it but i'm like well you know i want to do it right so you're you're buying quite a lot of stuff before you're really set up and there's a learning curve and it takes a lot of time and all these things and i don't really have space for sandblast cabinet yada yada but the reason that i was the most compelled to maybe actually do it was just that i thought it would be really satisfying to do multiple color wet paint jobs and i thought that i felt i don't know i just 
I, I didn't have any proof, but I just felt like if I spent a while at it, six months or a year or two, figuring it out and getting through the learning curve and, you know, g- getting a, a vinyl plotter to, to cut masks and stuff, I felt like eventually I was going to be really good at it. I thought I would, I don't know why, but I just really believed in myself that I would have chops and I would be, <laughs> I would have a, a vision for yeah. making a really pretty looking bike frame. And I was like, that would just be like a really satisfying thing to do. And I felt like that was the that was the most compelling argument that I had to do it. But ultimately I was just a little too pragmatic. It just seemed like too long of a road and I was having a hard enough time getting through all the other projects that I had standing in the way of, you know, efficient frame building. And so I uh, stayed more focused on frame building and then eventually kind of stopped making bikes more or less, but (laughs) uh, man, that would be fun. You know, there's a lot of really talented painters and, and I'm sure that when you, when you stand back and look at those high gloss, beautiful paint jobs, that look really good i'm sure there's just a huge amount of pride that that you have to feel about that yeah it's, it's amazing what some of those guys are doing and yeah i hear you about you know wanting to get into certain things of it but i mean i think we all struggle with the you know we got to pick our battles yeah <laughs> pick what we're going to choose to get good at you know we only have so much time so yeah exactly you recently built a full suspension mountain bike. Uh, you sent me a picture of it. it. Looks awesome. You know what? What is that? The first one that you built? Like, what does that process look like? Figuring that out, designing that. Uh, you know, like where where's that headed? Yeah, um, that's the biggest thing going on for me right now. As far as new stuff, I'm really excited about that bike. Uh, I've only gotten out on a couple rides on it. It's really awesome. Uh, so before I started building bikes, I lived over near, if anybody's familiar with Durango, I lived over near the Durango Cyclery. And um, there at that time, there was a guy working there named Anthony Diaz. Uh, and since then, he has started his own suspension um kind of like suspension specific they do custom tuning uh rebuilds and all kinds of stuff for bikes and also motos um and he's a he's like a downhill racer type guy really really knows the stuff but anyway when i was first getting into building frames the first thing he asked was so when are you going to build a full suspension (laughs) (laughs) and so it's been on my mind since day one and um and it's really cool because he's just, he's one of these, Diaz is one of these people that is just always into talking um, what he knows about. And so I've spent, I don't even know how many hours talking to him. You know, our first conversations were all about like, well, why does pivot point, you know, where the pivot point matter is matter? Um, what's the leverage ratio? You know, why does dampening matter? Why does all of this stuff and it really has been a many year process of learning about how, you know, what's important in a full suspension um, and then going through the process of designing one and then, and actually building it. And it was really cool because I, I'm not going to lie. I was totally expecting this bike to suck a lot more than it actually does. Um, it rides so well it pedals well it's not that heavy it works on the shock really well and it's super simple uh it's a you know standard single pivot i'll probably be posting pictures of it here in the next month or so 
on Instagram and on my website. Uh, but it's a bike that I really want to add to the lineup. Uh, I want to sell full suspensions. It's kind of always been in the back of my mind to sell full suspension someday. And now with the first prototype um, alive and kicking, it's it feels much, much closer much more realistic but yeah it's been a really fun design process and it's just so crazy all of the problems you have to solve when you're designing suspension is is just such a different can of worms mm-hmm. from a from a hardtail there are so many ways you could go wrong there are just so <laughs> many pitfalls and you can kind of understand why when you look at like the the 90s and the early 2000s like all of the suspension that people built that was just an absolutely atrocious idea once you actually like <laughs> swung a leg over it uh-huh. it's so easy to understand once you've had to you know design one and i think that you know a lot of what i learned from from my friend Diaz really helped me avoid a lot of those pitfalls and what i'm doing is not anything new there's nothing like crazy revolutionary or special about what i'm doing but the fact that the first one i built rides as well as as it does is something that I'm really excited about. Yeah. And it's a ton of fun. Um, yeah, it's a whole other kind of biking for sure. From yeah. So when you designed that, did you have like a full scale, you know, uh, computer model in CAD going, or was this more of like a, like a simpler 2d drawing with, you know, pivot points and, and figuring out the range of travel or what was that design process like? So it was kind of a, Actually, I used three separate computer programs. Um, I ended up using uh, Linkage, which is the kind of one of the go-to programs for people who are just kind of interested in playing around with pivot points, uh, shock mounting points, things like that. But you can't really do a whole lot with it as far as like the actual tubing um, and the miter angles and things like that. So I used BikeCAD for, uh, to design a lot of like the front triangle and then that's for my frame jig to get everything set up. And then um, I used Fusion 360 with just using the sketches, just like the 2D uh, modeling mm-hmm. to make sure that like my pivot points, my chain, my bot, like all the really finer details didn't run into each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And to get a bunch of miter angles for like the rear triangle and a bunch of stuff and just like clearances, like, you know, how big the bearing was going to be and make sure that uh, the tubing that I was using and things like that. And so I will say going back into all of it, I don't know that I would even use BikeCAD. I think I would maybe even go straight to Fusion 360 and just model the whole thing in 2D mm-hmm. because, I don't know, it just, it was, I was able to, you know, it, you can add whatever you want or subtract whatever you want. Nothing moved. It was like all uh, super basic, just drawing, just to give me reference points when I was mm-hmm. making stuff. And then a, there was a lot of um, just going into the shop and, staring at it for, you know, 10 minutes or whatever and being like, okay, this is how I want to do this. Um, I'm going to machine a part to fit here that does this um, and things like that. And so uh, I spent a lot of time machining, manually machining, like weird little suspension pieces. (laughs) Yeah. I 
am probably never going to do again. But, um, yeah, the whole process was really, really interesting, and I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I'm really happy with the product, which is always makes it better. But of course, I'm probably going to do a whole bunch of things different with the, with the final product yeah. already. I already know what I'm going to change up. Yeah. I think uh, as I get better and better with the machining process and the CAD and CAM process, uh, you know, I, I don't know the first thing about suspension design. That's something I've never studied, but the the prospect of making iterative designs with something like that, with different moving pieces and stuff, I'm starting to wrap my head around how I would go about that, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, you could do sketches that were parametric and you could, you could, you know, make your best guess and you could make an iteration and machine some parts. And when you build all your models and stuff, just right in, in uh, your, you know, fusion cam or fusion, fusion CAD software, or SolidWorks or whatever, uh, if you do it right, then it really makes it very easy to make revisions and and uh, just kind of, you know, hit go and run, run another cycle on the machine without even having to like reprogram everything. And um, there's a big learning curve to getting to that point where you can do all that stuff. And there's definitely physical limitations to the process like that, but it's, it's pretty amazing, especially with like the multi-axis machining that I've been doing lately and stuff. It's the thought of like some of those... Uh, some of those yokes between like the, the, the shock and the, the rear linkage and all that stuff, you know, how you could scale that to different proportions for, for width and length and, uh, all that stuff, you know, you could make variables so that you could, um, you know, once you had the finished model, make one, and then you could change the variables and just kind of regenerate the code and make another one without hardly any more work, which is, it's, it's crazy that, um, that technology has become so accessible nowadays. Yeah, definitely. I, I've i never really done too much with uh, computer modeling. The, the very first, you know, that first tandem that I did, um, I drew the whole thing on a piece of paper, a really huge piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, that was just kind of how I got into it. Maybe that was kind of like my version of hand filing was doing hand drawing. <laughs> Full scale drawing, and yeah. Just, you, yeah, I mean, the amount of eraser I ended up having to use was just, crazy um because again yeah you can you really want to be able to go back and fine-tune things and revise things but yeah i really got into the uh 2d stuff with fusion 360 because i started getting parts laser cut um for various parts of my bikes and i'm going to have you know certain suspension pieces laser cut and things like that but it's a nice easy way to get into the modeling because it's two-dimensional and Mm so it's all just pretty basic geometry you know it's lines and circles and curves and whatever um but i've I've definitely enjoyed uh using that process and then being able to use it for an actual bike frame and you know make everything fit uh for that full suspension was a really valuable tool for me at least yeah absolutely for years when I would design stuff, I'd just napkin sketch it and whatever. Cause I just always had such a hard time getting over the learning curve with CAD. But, uh, as I, as I have, it's just been so transformative for me to, to be able to get those ideas out digitally and then to, to make iterative changes and all that stuff is just, it's amazing. And what I always say about bike CAD is that like, I think the real strength of bike CAD is that there's two main things. Maybe the one of them is that you don't need to know, 
actual like CAD software, which tends to be much steeper learning curve. And so it really helps like the masses of people just get into making good designs with like less of a bar to entry. And the other thing that's great about it is that no, you know, SolidWorks and Pro-E and all these like really powerful CAD softwares in industry, they're actually pretty bad for the average frame builder in terms of like just turning out a good design for a diamond frame bike for your customer. And so if you build like 50 bikes a year and you just have to take like body measurements and inputs that you've gotten from conversations with your customer and you have to turn that into a good diamond frame bike, nothing is going to ever be as efficient as something like BikeCAD because BikeCAD is so bike centric and you can, you, you know, all, it's just everything about it is, is streamlined for that process. But when it comes to s- stuff like, you know, full suspension and, you know, weird uh, oddity sorts of things. And um, I'm not talking about oddity cycles specifically, although I'm sure for him, there's <laughs> limitations sometimes with the, the tubes also for BikeCAD, but um, all, all these weird things that you want to do you know, you run out of the scope of the program and that's okay because I think the strength of that program is undeniable. It's, it's so valuable for the way that most custom frame builders uh, spend their time, which is making diamond frames that are really trying to make a dialed experience for their customer. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's, it's a tool uh, just like any tool. Um, it's got its limits and then it's got its things it's really good at. And for a, a lot of things in bicycle design it does it does what it does perfectly so yeah yeah it's a great it's a great tool yeah yeah and i i always have only nice things to say about brent i really appreciate him um the the last question i want to get to is what advice you would have to your younger self in your journey through frame building or advice that you would give to other builders that you see struggling with this that or the other thing you know, yeah, I don't know. It's a great question. It's, uh, I feel like this question brings up a bit of, um, what's the word for it? Imposter syndrome. I don't want to sound like <laughs> I really know what I'm talking about. Well, you know, um, I think everybody but, feels that way. First of all, in the whole of the bike yeah, frame building industry, yeah. which I've learned through doing this show. And I already had a sense of, but I would also say that that's part of the reason that I phrase it, you know, like if you want to give advice to your younger self, that's, uh, you know, anybody can do that. Everybody's learned from something they've done. And I, I feel the same way. Yeah. Like I, I built, I'm sure less bikes than you, you know, like w- what position am I in to tell anybody? <laughs> uh, but we all have something right, to share, yeah. you know, and we've all learned a lot of things. Uh, you know, everybody's perspective has some. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, some of the main things that I would sort of bring up would be, Number one, right out of the gate, decide if you want to do it as a business or a hobby um, and really structure what you want to do around that. You know, if you want to do it as a business, get the insurance, get the, um, you know, register everything, do everything right um, and charge what you're worth um, and be worth what you're charging, you know, and um, but if you want to do it as a hobby, then do it as a hobby, but don't try to straddle that weird line of, um, you know, maybe being a little bit of both or neither or whatever. Um, because I think it's just really valuable to, if you're going to be serious about it, be serious about it. I think, I think as far as like for people starting out, um, or looking to get into it, my biggest piece of advice would really be, 
to get your hands dirty, so to speak, um, buy a welder, try welding or buy an oxyacetylene setup and try some brazing. Like just, I, I really liked when you uh, had that interview with Adam Sklar a while back where he was mm-hmm. saying, you know, have something to show. Um, I think that that's so valuable because it's, I mean, people can kind of talk about their interest in something all day long, but man, once you've taken action on it, you're also going to have such more pertinent questions for, uh, for folks. And, um, same with like, if you're thinking of taking a class, like go futz around, like build a bike frame before you take that class, because man, you are going to have so many better questions for the teacher once you've already built a bike frame, you're going to go in there and you're going to have questions that nobody else in the class has even thought of because you're going to have already kind of muddled your way through it or struggled through it. Um, yeah. So that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, have fun with it. You know, don't forget to have fun. That's what we. That's the whole reason we're, we're doing this. There's, there's easier ways to make a living, and <laughs> we're doing it because we love it. So try not to lose sight of that. Yeah. The thing that you said about, you know, have something to show and and referencing my conversation with Adam Sklar, I just always think about that from, you know, you benefit from having gotten your hands dirty because it gives you perspective, you know, what questions to ask and you will pick up on details. You know, if you go visit somebody's shop and you've built three totally amateur bikes, you will notice little things that they do and about how they have their shop set up that you would never have noticed without having, you know, struggled through certain things. And, but the other side of that coin is that if, if you are very experienced and you have a lot to share and other, you know, newer people, less experienced people are coming to you and they're asking questions, uh, you know, in that position, you just don't want to feel like you're wasting your time because if you're successful, you're probably busy. Right. And so, uh, the, you know, see, seeing someone come to you who's already put in some time lets you know that you're not wasting your time by giving them advice that they will never put to use. And that's like, uh, right. I've heard that a lot about networking and stuff. It's like, if you're trying to build a relationship with somebody where you have, you stand to learn a lot from them, like the thing that, that stops a lot of people from taking the time is they just don't want to waste their time. If they see that the person that they're trying to help yeah. is like, really putting in the time and like they're clearly uh, interested and, and willing to, to take advice and put it into play, then like it's probably worth them to help because they, they can relate to that. But there's so many people who will just ask questions before they've ever done anything and they may or may not ever actually get to work on it. And so it it's just, it's harder to, to believe that you're not wasting your time uh, helping people with that. And so that's, I think that's the other side of the coin that makes it really important. It's just, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a, a that's an excellent point because you know if you you are talking to somebody who is experienced, um, you know, and you say you have a, a half an hour to talk to somebody who really knows about in this case uh, frame building, you know, if your questions are like, well, where do I buy butted tubing? It's like, okay, well, you could have asked Google that, um, as opposed to like, you know, like how do I get my seat say miters the same length or like you know, my mill always does this one thing when I try to do this one miter and I haven't figured out why it's doing it. Like the really nitty gritty stuff, because those guys are going to have, you know, that half an hour of their time is going to be so much more valuable, not just to you, yeah. but to them as well. Yeah. That's the, yeah. the snarky, um, if you, 
let me Google that for you. I think there's like a website where you right. you type in your yeah. query and then you send that <laughs> URL to somebody. So when they ask you something, it's, yep. just, <laughs> it's like, yeah, you guys can look this up if you're not familiar. But yeah, if, if you're asking a question yep. uh, that you could easily have answered on your own, that's a good way to let the person know that you don't really value their time that much. And I mean, you know, no question is stupid and don't be like, you know, afraid to, to reach out to people and ask questions, but it shows when, Definitely. when you've been putting in the time and working on something, uh, versus not. Yeah. If nothing else, you'll get more out of it. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, it's better both ways around is I guess what I'm trying to say is it's, it's better for all parties. Uh, so anyway, yeah. um, I think we should wrap up the call here. It's a lovely day and I, I want to be, uh, enjoying and making the most of it. So, uh, uh, Thanks yeah. so much for being on the show. It's cool to talk and get perspective on all the things you've been doing. Absolutely, Joan. Uh, yeah, I hope you get the chance to get out and get some sunshine. <laughs> yeah, cool. See ya. <laughs>